This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. See everyone here. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 33 this morning, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. Well, kids, today is the day. What's it going to be? Coal? Not? They're like, well, they brought us here, if that tells you anything. When I was a kid, I remember when I was in trouble, my parents would go into their room, shut the door, and have a conversation to decide my fate. It was the SWAT team synchronizing their watches, coordinating entry plans, securing exits. Anyway, I remember one night I was lying in my bed when I heard my parents go in their room to have one of those conversations. What had I done? I thought to myself, frantically. Let me rephrase that. What did they know or figure out I had done? I thought to myself, frantically. But as I was reviewing the last several days of my life in my mind, their door opened. The moment of reckoning had arrived. I laid there motionless in my bed. As they exited their room into the hallway, they were right in front of my door. At any moment, I knew my door was going to swing open, the lights flung on, and those words, Grant, get up, we need to talk to you. But to my complete surprise, the angel of death passed by my door. And I listened, somewhat disoriented. As get this, they went into my sister's room. Lights flung on. The words, Anna, get up. We need to talk to you. It was a glorious day. <laughs> the chorus of the angels. My sister got in trouble. My sister got in trouble. It wasn't me. In our story this morning, Israel is sort of having one of those moments where they're not sure what's going to happen to them. You see, they had been freed from slavery in Egypt. Moses had brought them through the Red Sea. Currently, they are camped out in front of Mount Sinai where Moses is receiving the law from God. However, chapter 19 clearly tells us that Israel, the people, were terrified about what was going on. The thunder, the lightning, the smoke, the sound of God's voice shaking the mountain that they stood before, it all terrified them. Especially one day when Moses went up the mountain, but he didn't come back down. Days passed, weeks, a month, and still he didn't come back down. Until after 40 days, when Moses still hadn't returned, it seemed pretty obvious to the Israelites what had happened. And they were like, well, he's dead, so I guess we should make an idol and worship it. So get this, in Exodus chapter 32, right before our passage this morning, Aaron, Moses' brother, went to a bunch of people in, in, in the camp and got all their gold jewelry, melted it down, and made a golden calf for them to worship. A golden calf. They're sitting there worshiping an idol while they stood before the mountain that was still shaking with God on top of it. 
And to boot, Moses wasn't dead. I don't know if you've ever experienced a time like this. Say you take one of your little kids to the office of an important business contact. And you're sitting there on the couch and you look for a way, away for a moment. And then, and then you look back and your kid's wiping a booger or something on their couch. I think Moses must have felt like that at some times with the Israelites. Because he's up on the mountain with God and God is like, Moses, you're going to need to go back down there. Your people have started worshiping an idol. So Moses went back down. He confronted the people. He killed the 3,000 or so men who were involved in instigating this debacle and explained to the people that God wanted to wipe them all out, just be done with them and destroy them all. But Moses told the people, he said, I'll go before God on your behalf and see if I can atone for this sin. And so God agreed that he wouldn't kill all the people, but not as well. Not all is well. It's not fixed. Look at verse 1 of chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it to you. He says in verse 2 he's going to send an angel before him to drive out the enemies. But look at verse 3. God said to Moses, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but... I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God said he wouldn't destroy them, but he's not going to go with them anymore. And the next few verses in, in chapter 33 describe how heartbroken the people were about this. So Moses said again, let me go talk to God again and, and see if I can get him to change his mind. So Moses went back into the tent of meeting to meet alone with God, and look what it says the people did in verse 8 of chapter 33, it says, Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. In other words, our passage this morning picks up with Israel uh, as they're watching mom and dad, as it were, go behind closed doors to decide their fate to have a conversation about what's going to happen to them. Is God going to abandon them? Is he going to leave them alone in this barren wilderness to fend for themselves where they would have already died multiple times over if he wasn't there? That's what these people were wondering as Moses entered the tent, and that's the question I want to answer for us this morning. Will God abandon his sinful people? Will God abandon his sinful people? People. And the way I want to do this is first, we'll look at the three sections of the conversation between God and Moses, and then second, we'll come back around and see what it means to us. But that's the setting. Moses and God are in the tent, and Moses kicks off the first of three sections of this conversation, beginning in verse 12 of Exodus chapter 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, this nation is your people. So in this first section, 
what I want you to see is that the Lord would not abandon Moses. This is the first thing. The Lord would not abandon Moses. But I have to admit, there are a couple of really tricky pieces to this passage. It really took me a while to figure out. For example, look at verse 12. Moses basically says, God, you told me to bring these people to the promised land, but you haven't said who's going to show us the way. Yet you yourself said that I have found favor in your sight. But look closely at verse 13. This is the tricky part. Moses said, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways so I can find favor in your sight. Which is it, Moses? Have you found favor in God's sight or not? Well, I think the answer is found in understanding what Moses means when he asks God to show him his ways. You see, I think Moses is pointing out a a discrepancy between the job he is called to and, and the resources he has to carry it out. He still has the calling of, of getting Israel to the promised land, but he didn't know how to do that. Meaning, when Moses asked God to show him his ways, he wasn't asking God to, to show him kind of his generic righteous ways like with the law. It's more specific than that. Literally, he's saying, show me how to lead these people out of here. Because if you remember last week, this already isn't the way I would have gone. In other words, Moses wanted to know God's mind. He wanted to know his intentions and his objectives so he could effectively lead God's people where God wanted them to go. He didn't simply want God to to send down orders. he, He wanted to know the thinking behind God's plan. And for that to happen, he needed God to stay with him. So when Moses asks... If if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways so I may find favor in your sight. What he's saying is, is if I have found favor in your sight, go with me so, so I can lead your people the way you want me to and therefore continue to find favor in your sight. And in verse 14, God answered, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Well, awesome, right? Problem solved. God will be with Moses. Well, not really. Look at the second section, the second part of our conversation, beginning in verse 15, because there's another tricky part to figure out. In verse 15, Moses said to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Which is it again, Moses? God says in verse 14, My presence will go with you. But then Moses says in verse 15, If your presence will not go with me. Moses, dude, I think you need to work on your listening skills. God just said he was going to go with you. Why did he say that? If God just said, my presence will go with you, then why did Moses ask if your presence will not go with me? Well, the answer, I think, is found in two places. First, back in verse 14, when God said, my presence will go with you, that you is singular. Meaning God said he would go with Moses, but not Israel. Therefore, second, notice the shift in Moses' appeal In verse 16, Moses says, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So twice Moses now shifts his argument to I and your people. And Moses says that because he knows God's presence is the only thing that makes them distinct 
or special in any way. Think about it. What distinguished Israel from any other nation at this point in history? It wasn't their land. They didn't have any. It wasn't their culture. They'd been in slavery for 400 years. It certainly wasn't their righteousness. They couldn't even keep the basics of God's commands for a few days. So what was it that made them distinct from any other nation in the world? Well, quite frankly, the only thing Israel had going for them was if God stayed with them. And the same is true for anyone who has ever lived. Phil Riken called this truth the great divide that runs down the center of the human race. Meaning there have always been only two kinds of people in this world. On the one side, you have those who make it through this life on their own skills, on their own tries, on their own talents, but God is not with them. And then on the other, you have those who depend on God's grace and mercy and power to guide their lives. To be more specific, some people have forgiveness for their sins. Others don't. Some people have eternal life. Some don't. Some people have peace when they face death and suffering, and some don't. And Moses knew the only chance his, or her pe- his, his people had of being on the right side of that divide was if God was with them. So look how God answered him in verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, because you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. You to look closer again at that. In verse 17, God said, This I will do, meaning I will go not only with you, but with Israel. Why? In the second half of verse 17, he said, I will remain in the presence of my people because you, singular again, because you, Moses, have found favor in my sight. In other words, not only did God not abandon Moses, But God didn't abandon Israel either. That's the point of this second section of this conversation. And the reason God didn't abandon Israel, listen, isn't because of anything Israel did or deserved, but only because Moses had found favor in God's sight. Which makes the third section, beginning in verse 18, really interesting. Moses says right after that, please show me your glory. Where did that come from? What does that have to do with anything? It's like if someone said, hey, man, I'm moving this weekend. Do you think I could borrow your truck? Sure. Yeah, not a problem. You know, do you think you could help me move? I I need some help. Well, I had some plans, but yeah, why not? Cool. Thanks, man. Say, could I also have your house to move in to your house? Whoa, dude. Like, tap the brakes. Where... Where is this coming from? This is, this is a lot that Moses is asking for. Why did he ask that? Did he think maybe God is in a good mood? He just said yes twice, so I'm going to throw this out there and see if it sticks. I don't think so. Moses had just spent 40 days in God's presence on Mount Sinai receiving the law. He knew who this God was. This wasn't a random question, so why did he ask? Well, I think the answer is found in God's response to the question beginning in verse 19. And he, that's God, said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you 
and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In other words... Moses needed some assurance because how could the perfectly holy God he just spent 40 days with stay with his people after the horrific sin they just committed? When we want to know why Moses is asking God to show him his glory, Moses needed some assurance. God's answer, you can't look upon my face and live. I'm too holy. But, Moses, I will show you what you need to see. I will pass before you, and I'll let you see the contrail of my glory, just enough that it won't kill you. But it'll be the glory of my name that says, I am the eternal one, the existent being. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Now, we think that phrase sounds harsh, like, I will show mercy to who I will show mercy, like, who died and made you God. But what I want you to see is God's response to Moses is not harsh. No, what God is showing Moses is exactly what Moses needed to see. In other words, Moses needed to hear God say that the reason he would stay with his people is because when he decides to have mercy on someone, when he decides to show someone grace, it can't be taken away. It can't be taken back. Why? Because God is telling Moses, my grace is not dependent on the receiver. My mercy and grace is based on my own character. It's a sovereign decision of mine, Moses, and therefore irrevocable. That's what Moses needed to hear to ensure him that God wouldn't leave the people he knew he was leading. But more importantly, listen to this, don't miss what God is saying his glory is. When God says, I will show you my glory, what does he then describe as the part of his glory he will show Moses? God's saying his glory is his loving kindness, his sovereign grace, his unmerited favor. We're all on the naughty list. God's willingness to forgive those who sin against him is so glorious it would kill any mortal man who looked upon it. Because it displays not only the weight of his perfection, but therefore also the height of his mercy and grace. That's what Moses needed to see. He needed to see the weight of God's character that he would omnipotently, sovereignly choose whom he will love. And therefore, there is nothing they can do for which he would abandon them. In other words, 
God is letting Moses catch a mere glimpse of his blinding glory that says, Moses, you can't screw this up, nor can they, because this is my decision. I wonder what the people thought was going on all the time as they sat outside watching this tent. I imagine that they were probably just like me, expecting the judgment that they deserved. But that wasn't what they got, was it? No, because they had a leader who went before God on their behalf and asked him not to abandon them. And because God found favor in Moses... God said yes, and he showed Moses the glorious reason why he would not abandon his people. God showed Moses his glory that, that he would not abandon his people because he had sovereignly decided to show them grace. Now, I hope you weren't expecting a light sermon because it's Christmas morning. However, I also hope that it's not too difficult for you to figure out what this has to do with us. You see, the Bible calls Moses a mediator. Meaning he went before God on behalf of the people of Israel. He represented the people of Israel in front of God. And, and, and that means that God treated Israel not on their own merit, but on Moses' merit. God said, I will treat the people like this because of you, Moses. But as good as Moses was, as much favor as he had found in the Lord, he still wasn't good enough. In fact, it won't be long before Moses will get so mad at these people that he'll completely disobey God. And God won't let him go into the promised land with the people. In other words, God's people needed a mediator who was like Moses, but better. And sure enough, God was faithful to send us one. In fact, the relationship that God had with this better mediator he sent was very similar to the one he had with Moses. For example, just like we saw in the first section where God said he would stay with Moses because Moses had found favor in his sight. Listen to Mark chapter 1, verse 11. God said to this better mediator, You are my son in whom I am well pleased. He wouldn't leave him. And just like Moses petitioned God not to abandon his people in the second section of this conversation, this better mediator also asked God to stay with his people. In John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, listen to this mediator's prayer. He said, I do not ask for these only, he's talking about the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's you and I that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also, listen, may be in us or, or with us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, listen, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, this better mediator also petitioned God not to abandon his sinful people. 
But how could God answer that prayer? How could God answer that prayer? Because you see, in too many ways, we are not that different from Israel. Just like Israel worshipped a golden calf in God's presence at Mount Sinai, we too knowingly commit idolatry right in front of God. Lord, I really don't need this thing. But it'll make me look good, so I'm going to buy it anyway because it'll satisfy me in ways you don't. Lord, I know you said you will provide and you have, but I'm going to need to sacrifice the spiritual well-being of my family in order to make some extra money because I feel more secure with money than you. Lord, I know you said you would never leave me or forsake me, but I'm still going to move because I feel safer in a place that thinks more like I do politically than I do with you. Lord, you are the most important person in my life. Except for my children, who I'm going to have to take care of instead of worshiping you. Idols, brothers and sisters, right in the face of God. I could go on and on and on. Just like Israel, we knowingly set up idols all the time right in front of God. So the question still stands. Why shouldn't he abandon us as well? Why shouldn't he leave us to the mercy of our idols to see if they'll provide and defend us against this onslaught of sin and evil in this world? Why shouldn't he? Well, the truth is, before you and I could even ask that question, God gave us the answer. Listen, if you need assurance this morning that God won't leave his people to their own devices, if you, like Moses, need to see the glory of the Lord that guarantees he will not abandon his people, then, brothers and sisters, you need look no further than Jesus Christ, the better mediator. In fact, Listen to how John described him back in, in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. He said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Brothers and sisters, the glory of God. The glory that sovereignly says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious. The blinding glory that says, my decision to remain with my people is based on my sovereign grace, not their performance that is seen in perfection in Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. That glory of God is heard in the cry of an infant on Christmas morning. That radiance of God's stunning character, that He would not abandon His people, is seen in the diapers of a child that needed to wear them because he could not hold his bowels. That matchless splendor of God's glory that he would not abandon his people is seen in a child who lacked 
the cognitive ability to form words or sentences. That's who God became in order to not abandon us. How is that possible? Well, God's matchless glory is that He would become like His enemies in order to fix what they broke. It's because of the unparalleled glory of God that He would become a man in order to live the lives that we've ruined perfectly. Why? So that He wouldn't have to abandon us. Listen, Christmas Day is about the glory of God seen in the child of a virgin who would make a way for God to not abandon us. Not because we deserve it, and not because we want it, and certainly not because we earned it, but because God decided not to abandon us when, just like Moses, having found favor in God's eyes, Jesus asked him not to. Brothers and sisters, the reason God will not abandon us this Christmas morning is because God accepted Jesus Christ's plea for you and I, and He sovereignly decided not to. It has nothing to do with you and I. Everything to do with Jesus. You know, something interesting happened after Moses went to see God like this. You see, Moses would kind of soak up some of this glory that God showed him, and his face would shine for a few days, and it freaked the people out. And they made him wear this veil because it was so, so scary to them until his face stopped shining. But I want you to hear what Paul says our relationship to God's glory is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, Paul said this, Since we have such a hope, that's in Jesus he means, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So we all, that's you and I, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What does that mean? What does that mean that we are very bold because we with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord? Well, Paul tells us what it means in the next verse. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, he said, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, brothers and sisters, listen to what this means. We do not lose heart. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, because the God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give what? The light of the knowledge of the glory in the of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just like Moses, but better. 
In other words, brothers and sisters, listen, when you feel overwhelmed by the darkness of this world, do not lose heart. When you feel overwhelmed by the onslaught of, of pain and suffering and chaos and evil, do not lose heart. Even, listen, even if you feel overcome by the depth of your sin, we do not lose heart. Because the testimony we have on Christmas morning is not how good we are. It's not how well we're doing. No, what Paul is saying is the glorious testimony that is blazing out of you and I this Christmas morning is how well Christ did on our behalf. It's the same testimony as Paul's that God has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and we are reflecting that like a mirror. Listen, it's the testimony of the glory of God's promise not to abandon his people like us to our sin simply because he decided not to in Jesus Christ. That's your testimony this Christmas morning. You have seen the glory of God just like Moses, but better. Better.